Do you know what separates a failed business exit from a highly profitable one? Do you want to maximize the value of your business? The Business Exit Stories podcast is the solution. Through a collection of stories told by the business intermediaries who facilitate those transactions, you'll receive the key takeaways from successful and, yes, some not-so-successful business exits. Now is the time to begin to position your business for an exit by implementing key strategies designed to maximize your enterprise value and help you achieve an exceptionally profitable exit. This is Marvin L. Storm with Business Exit Stories. Today we have with us Jim Ofinowich, who is an M&A advisor from Scottsdale, Arizona. Jim has over 30 years of experience and is going to share several of his more intriguing deals with us today. His first story involves a financial services company that was weeks away from being sold. As the final draft of the letter of intent was being reviewed, and after all of the terms and conditions had been agreed to by the buyer, Jim had just one more term to discuss with his client, a term that his client would simply not agree to. You'll be floored by the reason why. In another deal that had its challenges, a technology company founded by a tech genius got right up to the closing table with all of the terms agreed to that would have created an opportunity for generational wealth for the founder and his family. But then the buyer and seller went out to dinner to celebrate consummating the deal. That dinner turned out to be a game changer for the founder. You'll just have to hear what happened during dinner. It made me lightheaded listening to Jim share this story. In a turn of events, an entrepreneur founder was acquired by a strategic acquirer in Jim's next story. It took months for the founder to negotiate a deal only to have his attorney suggest talking to Jim before he did anything. That conversation turned out to be one of the most profitable phone calls he had or would ever make. Finally, Jim shares the details of his best deal story ever and how he was able to turn a business worth less than $20 million into a cash deal of $120 million. You won't want to miss this story and the takeaway concepts from this deal that applies to every entrepreneur and founder listening to this episode. So let's buckle up. It's a wild ride today as Jim shares some of his deal stories with us. This is Marvin L. Storm with the Business Exit Stories podcast. We're here with Jim Ofinowich. Jim, would you take a few minutes and talk about your business and where you're located? Happy to do so. And Marvin, thank you for having me on the podcast. I am located in um, Scottsdale, Arizona. I have a M&A firm that I'm a part of that's been in business doing deals for over 30 years. Uh, We have offices in five different states in the United States, and I'm the partner that runs the Arizona office of IBG Business. What states are you located in? We are in Nevada, Arizona, Colorado, Oklahoma, and Pennsylvania. All right. And uh, obviously, you have all these different offices. You've probably done a lot of transactions. We collectively have closed over 1,100 transactions within our group. So uh, a few of those have turned out to be interesting stories. Well, let's let's jump in and chat with uh, some of those stories here today. And uh, why don't we start with uh, a specific transaction that you feel has a great takeaway that maybe didn't go all that well? Uh, yes, I can. Probably the one that, that comes to mind uh, right away is a company that was a financial services business. I uh, had been in business for about 15 years, started by the founder, run by the founder, uh, 15 employees that worked for the business, uh, was referred to us uh, to help him sell. And when we first met with the owner, he said he was selling for health reasons. So we didn't dig into that. We just started our assignment and went out looking for a buyer, buyers for him. Actually, wanted to try and get multiple buyers. But in going through the process, uh, we did find a buyer that was a good match for the business. There was a letter of intent issued. 
we negotiated the, the price and terms, the compensation for the deal fairly quickly, came to terms on that, then took the final version of the letter of intent to our client, the seller, and said, well, this has all the terms that we've talked about. Please review it. And if you, know, you agree, sign it, and we'll get it back to the buyer. I'm just curious here, Jim, as you're describing this story, how big of a company was this? Did it? How many employees did it have? Um, this had 15 employees. Now, you said it was kind of a husband and wife. The wife, was she active in the business? The wife was active in the business when they started it. It was the couple that started it, but she was no longer active in the business. She'd been able to withdraw from the business and take care of several small children in the family. You know, the husband then was kind of the point person. And uh, did they have a lot of customers? Was there customer concentration since it was a business that was a solid business, it sounds like. And uh, just because of health reasons, they wanted to exit. Uh, how, how much of the type of things did the husband do? What, what was he mostly focused on in the business since he had other employees? Well, the employees did all the back shop work. The owner was entirely focused on the customer relationships. Um, they had no real customer concentration, but a total of about 20 customers. So they were fairly business fairly evenly distributed across those customers from over a period of time. But the owner himself established all of the customer relationships. He did all of the sales. He was the one that brought on the customers. He did all the customer service. He was the face and the interaction of the company with the customers. Customers didn't even know the other employees. And so it sounds like he was crucial to the business in the sense that if he wasn't around, the customers wouldn't really know who to talk to. That is correct. He was very crucial to the business. And so the letter of intent the buyer put forth required 60 days of transition and training time. He said, in 60 days, I want you to take me around personally and introduce me to each one of your 20 customers. You have the relationships with them. We need to hand off those relationships. And I need at least 60 days for the two of us to meet with each, each customer so we can they can get to know me and I can get to know them. And this is sort of a standard provision in any deal of this size, right? It is very standard. Uh, oftentimes, it's much longer than 60 days. Um, so I thought that was a fairly short period of time, but that's what he requested and had a, a very specific plan of how to transfer these relationships. And so when my, my client, the seller, read the letter of intent, he said, you know, all the terms, everything are fine, but I cannot agree to 60 days of transition and training with him. And I said, well, that's a very short period of time. It's less than normal. You know, here's all of the reasons why, which you and I have just discussed, Marvin. So just out of curiosity to jump in here, Jim, but all the other terms, price, whatever the other terms were, all of those were agreed to and negotiated in and everything when you're coming down and trying to get the final sign off on the letter of intent, everything else had been agreed to. Everything had been agreed to. The only concern the seller had was the 60 days training. And so discussing that, I, I said, you know, we're in agreement on everything. This is absolutely normal. Well, and he said, I'm sorry. I cannot agree to 60 days training. I just came back from my doctor. My doctor tells me I have less than 30 days to live. I won't be here for 60 days. Wow, that's uh, a surprise coming out of left field for, I guess, you and him. It was. Um, he apparently knew that his time was short when he hired us, but did not relay that. 
Uh, and then as we went through the normal process, the time got shorter and shorter. So how long did this process from the time you engaged until you got to this point? Was this months or weeks or what? Oh, no. We had spent probably four or five months in the process from the day we started to, to getting to this point. You know, the, the, and that was very quick. The average transaction we work on takes 12 months from start to finish. So from the day someone hires us as a broker until we actually close the transaction, average time is 12 months. So being at this point at five, five months or so, we were well ahead of schedule. Well, you're ahead of schedule in one sense, but behind schedule in another, I guess. And so I'm just curious. I mean, normally, if the buyer understood the circumstances, he may have made some accommodations. But from what you're, you're talking about, the way you described how the owner controlled this customer relationships and that the customers didn't even know there were other employees in the company, that created a huge problem and some real barriers to be able to close a deal like this. It, it absolutely did. I'd use the word devastated. That probably is a, a better word describing the seller, but he really wanted the business. And then when he found out with the problem, uh, he wanted to be able to do something, but he realized the circumstances that the seller had established were just unworkable. If he paid you know, millions of dollars for this business, and now suddenly he walks into a client and says, oh, by the way, the man you're used to dealing with isn't here anymore. I'm the new owner. Uh, what's his likelihood of maintaining that account? Uh, it was a very competitive business. And so the relationships were key. Had the owner started ahead of time transferring some of those relationships to his employees, had he got the employees working with the customers so the customer had some sense of continuity going to a new owner. But the way the circumstances were, there was no continuity of ownership whatsoever. This was a financial services business and trust was paramount to a customer staying there. There weren't contracts. They were at-will customers that could leave at any point in time. Well, that's a real eye-opener we often hear in this podcast, how owners over-control a business, but this is really off the charts to the extreme of how an owner running a good business, and you said he'd been in business for, I think, believe 20, 20-plus years, and here we have absolute control and relationships built over that period of time with one person. And when there is no ability to have any other employees involved, I can see why a buyer who's paying millions of dollars would be very antsy, very concerned that he would pay for something that six months from now, half of the customers or more may just disappear. It was too much of a risk for that buyer. Jim, what would you say are the real takeaways from this story that you've shared with us today? You know, takeaway number one, I believe, is run your business like you're going to sell it tomorrow all the time. We, we tell people run your business like you're never going to sell it. Do the right things for the business but also be ready to sell that business or have the business ready to sell at any point in time. Uh, you know, people get killed in car accidents. People die from lots of things that are not expected. And if the business is entirely dependent upon that person, the family will never get the value out of the business. It's not sellable or not sellable for proper valuation. So build a business that can run by itself. Build a business that isn't entirely dependent upon you. Well, especially in this case, I'm just curious. Obviously, we probably didn't survive long-term. What happened to the business? The business ended up closing. All the employees were out of jobs. 
the family got nothing. After 20 years of hard work, that is a sad, sad story. That's that's one of the sadder stories we've had here on the podcast. That's a very, very catastrophic. Uh, yeah, and it can happen to anybody, you know, at, at any point in time. If well, I will tell business owners, what would happen if you got run over by a truck? Yeah. Tomorrow? Yeah. In this case, I guess... As you know, kind of summarizing your takeaway there is that he really didn't start soon enough. And he most importantly probably maintained too much of a control over the customer relationships when, especially in a financial services business where those relationships are crucial, he was not able to spread out that relationship over multiple people. So if he got sick or went on vacation or in this case, needed to transfer the business, it could be done. So that's a good takeaway, Jim. So let's move on to another transaction, maybe a little bit different than a service business. Talk about a different type of business that had its problems. All right. Well, I, I, another one in the, the, the challenged category uh, that stands out in my mind is a technology business. Was this like software or hardware? Um, software, Yes. And the founder of the company um, was the software engineer. He was literally a genius when it came to the technology part of what he was doing. And he had developed the software and it was used in one particular market niche, but had uh, was applicable to a broad range of market niches with a fair amount of re-engineering and adaptation. So it sounds like there was a lot of opportunity upside here. There was a tremendous amount of upside opportunity, but there was a tremendous amount of investment that was necessary to take advantage of that opportunity. Uh, He had the foundation to build a 100-story building, and it was a great foundation but you still needed a lot of hands, help, time, and money to put the other floors on the top of this foundation. So as you evaluated this company, were you looking for an outright sale or kind of a strategic partner? We were looking for a strategic partnership for it. Um, It is a case where they needed to have the founder continue to work with them The founder needed someone with business skills, marketing skills, and substantial resources that could be invested over multiple years to really get this thing into other markets fully. And so we look for a strategic partner. Now, quite often we do transactions like this. I would say 70% of the deals we do, we will sell a majority interest in the company, 70, 80% to someone that can come in as a strategic partner and provide money and expertise. You know, sometimes owning 10% or 20% of a $100 million company is better than owning 100% of a $5 million company. And so that was the case here. We were selling a majority, but more than the money up front, we would make more for a retained minority interest than we were making for control interest to begin with. You know, that's something a lot of entrepreneurs really don't consider. And I like your analogy there of saying that it's better to have a small piece of a big pie than all of a small pie. So I think that's something for to consider. It sounds like this was one of those situations. So how did the transaction unfold? Well, uh, we found a company in Canada that liked their technology, that had other markets to take it to, had some of the resources to build out this platform. Uh, We've talked to them and it was really a choice of finding not just someone who would sign on the dotted line, but someone who would put enough resources behind it 
It's not only how much money are you going to give me today, but how much are you committed to building this company? And they were very committed. They brought in another European company to partner with them. The opportunity was so great that they felt they needed a European partner involved. So they were taking care of North America, Canada, United States. The European partner was developing the European side of, of the business. So there was a letter of intent issued, outlined the basic terms of the deal. There was a substantial amount of cash up front. And then there was a very, very large royalty that paid out for many years for the founder for what he provided. Uh, there was a requirement for the founder to work with the company for a couple of years after the initial transaction. Um, he was the genius that had started it to begin with, so it was important to have him involved in the transaction. So we agreed on the terms of the letter of intent, it was frankly, richer than I ever thought we were going to be able to negotiate. Uh, the royalties paid out over years were phenomenal. So we, it was all set in concept and letter of intent. And then they invited us to their corporate headquarters in Canada to meet in person and talk about the deal and get into the specifics of the deal and how we were going to roll this out and just step by step. So the, my client and I flew to Canada. We met uh, with the head of this very large Canadian company. The partner from Europe had flown in for the meetings. We had a couple hours of, of very good meetings. And then my client, sensing how bad they wanted it, started negotiating for very small things, such as vacation time. He said, well, I know you need me to work for you, but I take three months of vacation every year. So I have to have three weeks off a year, or three months off a year. And I said, well, to begin with, could you limit that to a month on the first year as we're getting this going? He said, no, I can't do that. And I have to have a company car and I have to have the company pay for these things. And he started, he was negotiating over pennies and nickels when there were dollars on the table. He lost focus of the big picture and what this meant. Uh, he didn't want to make a very small sacrifice with his time for a short period and was very strong in his approach. Um, so much so that I took a break and took him out in the hall and said, you're missing the big picture. You know, these things are minor compared to the whole thing. Here's where we're at in the process. You know, don't, don't get greedy here. And so we ended our meeting that day. And then we went, when we had dinner that evening, again, with the president of the European company, the president of the Canadian company, my client, they, they took us to one of the finest restaurants in Toronto and asked if we wanted wine. And my client said, yes, he loves wine. So they ordered a very, very expensive bottle of wine uh, that I have to admit was the best wine I'd ever tasted. And we went through that very quickly. So they ordered another bottle of wine. And they ordered another. <laughs> I can see where this is going. <laughs> <laughs> and so I, I had had my glass of wine and I think I was, I can't tell you how many glasses behind my, my client. And after, you know, we're, we're halfway into dinner and I can't tell you how much wine and my client goes back to nitpicking over pennies and saying, 
I am the genius that's here and none of this is possible without me. And I have to have my company car and I have to have this. And I'm an addict, even though you are going to own 80% of the company, I'm going to be the guy that controls everything because I'm smarter than everybody here. Not quite in those words, but almost. And I imagine he was emboldened by the wine he had been consuming. He was. Um, he had an ego to begin with, but this ego really came out. And emboldened is a, a, a very good word for that. So he didn't control the alcohol. He didn't control his own ego. And he tried to negotiate things that were totally unimportant as if they were. So we finished our multi-thousand dollar meal. <clears throat> our host paid for that. Went back to our hotels. First thing the next morning, I got a call from the president of the buying group who thanked me for coming to Canada, thanked for all of us for our consideration, but wanted me to know that they with, were withdrawing their offer. And his exact words were, there is no way that we can work with that man. Deals off. Wow. No deal. Well, I'm just curious, since this had a long tail royalty on it, you said this happened a number of years ago. What happened? What did he do? He went back home, uh, said, well, if they can build a company like that, I can do it myself. He hired 23 people, built a, uh, got a brand new office, said that he was going to execute the plan that they were doing. Within six months, all 23 people had quit. The business went back to exactly the level it had been before. Um, I've actually met him years after the fact and found that there was no change in the business other than his children had taken it over and they were making a modest living by running this company. And he gave up, I could say, at a minimum $50 million in royalty payments that, that never materialized because he didn't do the deal. Well, that is a sobering thought to know that those royalties could have been tens of millions of dollars and you got none of it. And you're kind of back to square one and maybe even somewhat behind square one. I would imagine competition moves on and the market changes. So I guess the big takeaway from hearing you recount this story is really our audience out there that are looking at some point in time to be involved in a negotiation is that, you know, don't stop to pick up pennies and walk by dollars. And uh, I guess it goes without saying when you, when you've negotiated the deal and you go out for, for dinner, you know, watch how much wine you drink, huh? <laughs> yep, and, and park your ego at home. <laughs> yeah, well, that that's uh, that's another sad tale here of uh, tens of millions of dollars that didn't materialize that very easily could have. Yeah, and as a broker who works primarily on a commission basis, it was a very sad story for me as well. <laughs> yeah, well... Let's shift gears here, Jim. So why don't you recount some stories that uh, you've been involved in that had an outcome that worked out well for buyers and sellers? All right. Well, I, I love telling those stories better. <laughs> Fortunately, we have more of the good ones. But uh, here's one that uh, happened just a couple of years ago. This was a distribution business. Uh, it was run by the husband and wife. Um, both very active in the business. How long of a business? Was this decade-old business or relatively few years? It had been in business for 20 years. Did they start it or did they acquire it? They started the business from scratch. Okay. And grew, slowly grew and grew the business until um, they had a good reputation locally, nationally for what they did. They were very good operators. Um, thought well of in the industry. So 
I was first introduced to them, uh, or they were referred to me, I guess I should say, by their attorney. And it, it went kind of like this. I got a call on a Wednesday afternoon, uh, husband and wife on the phone, introduced themselves to me, said their attorney had referred them to me, that they had been approached by a buyer, synergistic buyer in their industry that wanted to by their company, that they had been negotiating on their own with this buyer for the last eight months. And after eight months in negotiation, had a letter of intent on the table for $6 million. I would imagine they're pretty excited about that. They, they were very excited about that. Six, you know, from starting from scratch and having a, the type of business they did, that seemed like an awful lot of money. And they liked the buyer. Uh, they finally, after eight months, had a letter of intent on the table. That's why they went to their lawyer. And their lawyer said, well, before you do anything, just, just talk with Jim. He's a M&A broker that I know. He's familiar with your industry. Um, see what he says about this. So I said, uh, yes, I am familiar with the industry. Here is what I recommend you do. Uh, call the buyer and tell them that you're hiring a broker to represent you. Give them my name, Tim, tell them Jim Afinowicz of IBG Business is going to be representing me and that I will give them a call in about two weeks once I get my arms around the deal. And uh, he said, okay, I, I, I will do that. So Thursday morning, he called the buyer, delivered that message. The buyer said, oh, don't get some broker involved with it. Brokers just delay things. We've got eight months into this. You know, just please leave the broker out of it and just sign the letter of intent. So the letter of intent, did it have an expiration date? It had an expiration date of the following Monday. Oh, okay. And the, the seller had said to me, well, Jim, it expires on Monday. I, I can't wait two weeks. And I said, trust me, I've done this for over 30 years. You've spent eight months negotiating. They won't go away if you don't call them by Monday. Respond. So the message is, is delivered Thursday morning to the buyer. Buyer said, please don't get a broker involved. Seller said, no, this is my entire life savings. This is the biggest transaction of my life. I like you. I want to do a deal with you, but I want to have a broker guide me through the process. Jim will get a hold of you within two weeks. What did the buyer say? How did he react? I mean, was he accepting or did he push? He pushed some more, but the seller dug his heels in and said, no, I, I, I want to do a deal with you. I appreciate the time that we've done, um, but I want you to go through my representative. I haven't done this before. I want to make sure for both of us that we do this the right way. So Friday morning, the buyer calls the seller and said, Please don't get a broker involved with this. We are ready to sign the letter of intent. We've got all this time in it. Those brokers, they're just going to stretch things out. If you agree to do this without the broker, you can change our offer from $6 million to $8 million. Wow. <laughs> That's pretty good for a afternoon day of work, I guess, huh? It is. So the seller called me and related this story to me. And he said, you know, I negotiated for eight months and I got $6 million. He said, you've been involved for less than 48 hours and you already got me $2 million more. <laughs> and I said, well, I guess you're going to hire me then, aren't you? Because <laughs> he hadn't actually signed my contract yet. And uh, he did hire me. And what was going on was that the buyer did not want to have competition. The seller had two choices at that point. 
either no sale or sell on the terms that this buyer would agree to. And we have a saying in our office that one buyer is no buyer. We maximize value on a transaction like this size and, and larger by going to market without a price, by trying to get multiple buyers bidding against each other. Now, it may be for price, it may be for term, but at least you want to have a choice as a seller. And if a buyer knows they're in competition, it helps keep them honest in the transaction. They will pay more for fear of loss. And so we want the market to determine what the price is. Anybody can estimate what that price will be, but ultimately the market determines it. One person may be willing to pay more than another. So we took this person on as a client. We told this buyer that we wanted them involved, but we were going out to market and we were going to get other offers because we weren't sure about theirs. And we ultimately sold the company to a different buyer. The seller really liked, not the original one, but we sold it for $10 million. Well, that is a 40% jump over what they originally were offered. I guess did the buyer, the original buyer, did he know that the business was probably worth a lot more than he was paying for it? Obviously, he did. Yes, he, he did. Um, he thought he was the only game in town. That's why he only went to $6 million. Suddenly, when there was going to be competition, he was willing to go to $8 million because he probably knew it was worth ten. Were the terms better or the same uh, on the new buyer than what was originally negotiated? Terms were very similar. Uh, it was primarily cash. There was a note. There was some holdback. But actually, the holdback on a percentage basis was less with the buyer we ended up selling to than the percentage of holdback with the original buyer. Well, I guess the big takeaway here, Jim, is I like your little quote there, one buyer is no buyer. I guess that's the big takeaway here is that you might want to consider hiring someone that can create that multiple buyer competitive environment. It's hard to do that on your own, especially when you get into transactions of this size and larger, I guess. You really want to have the market, as you put it so well, I believe, that uh, you want the market uh, to tell you what your business is worth, not as an estimate of what you think it's worth. Is that a pretty good summary of what you think the takeaway is? Yeah, I think that is a very good summary, Marvin. You know, the one thing I would add is when you set a price on a business, all you're doing is setting a cap. You don't want to do that. So what you mean by that is that if you think the business is worth $5 million, in this case, $6 million, that was kind of the cap that the, they had negotiated. And really... That's really not what the market believes that cap is going to be. There may be someone else in the market who sees more value than buyer number one. You added a lot of value to that transaction. Well, have you had any other real home run hits like this where you added that type of value and maybe even more? Um, yes, I'll tell you my best story ever. I'll acknowledge that to begin with. In over 30 years and over 1,100 transactions, this is my best story ever. Okay. Well, this is probably a doozy then. Let's go. <laughs> okay. Well, it started out a typical entrepreneur. Gentleman was a salesman um, for Xerox. Had worked in the corporate environment doing sales for years, but had come from an entrepreneurial family and decided that he wanted to get out of corporate America, um, tired of working for a salary, and he wanted to work for himself. So he decided to open a bakery. Baking was one of his passions. So he got a small bakery and a little strip center. And he went in at 3 a.m. and baked the bread. And then he went home during the day and slept while his wife and his daughter worked the counter in the bakery and sold his baked goods. 
And he was very creative, very progressive. He had healthy breads, non-GMO breads, uh, gluten-free bread, and then got very, very involved in organics. And it was a time in the market where organic baked products were really taking off. White bread sales were declining. And his business grew and grew. He was no longer working nights and his, while his <laughs> family worked the counter during the day, he ended up getting a much larger business. So he hired other people to do the baking then? He hired many other people to do the baking. <laughs> and it kept growing and growing. And, you know, managing a growing business is really challenging, uh, more so than managing a stable one. And he was getting burned out. So he was referred to us. We met with him. We looked at the company and he said, I, I want to sell. Can you get me $20 million for my business? Uh, now, this was 15 years after he started the business. So went from working at three, working all night. And we looked at it and said, no, I don't think we can get 20 million for your business today. But if you're willing to take a little bit of time and prepare your business for sale, do some improvements, increase your bottom line. I think if you will follow some things that we're going to suggest, we'll refer you to some people that can help, we can sell your business for more down the road. And he was the best client I've ever had. He agreed. And so we put off selling the business and we had people help him work on the business. Um, as things like, putting in new production equipment that was modern, more efficient. There was a capital expenditure, but it created more efficiency and better bottom line. We suggested that he hire a, a CFO. And he said, oh, I don't know that I can afford a real CFO. What's that going to cost me, like 80000 a year? And we said, no, it might, if you're lucky, it'll cost you 150000 a year. But he went out and he hired a good CFO and hired other key people. We met with his accounting firm and we suggested that his financial statements be changed to audited statements, that we expected potentially public buyers for this company and we needed audited financial statements. And so he did that. And 18 months after that first meeting, when all of these things were in place, we then went to market and we ran a competitive process. I'm kind of curious, what did you think the business was worth at that time? Well, we sat down and we did all of our financial analysis. We looked at PE ratios and multiples and I sat down with uh, the gentleman uh, that was the lead on this in my office, and I said, I want you to write on a piece of paper what you think we're going to get, and I'm going to do the same thing, and then we're going to turn those pages over at the same time. And we did. He turned his over, and it was $45 million, and my number was $48 million. And the owner was very happy with the cards we'd turned over. I can imagine. <laughs> twice what he wanted, more than twice. Yep, more than twice. But we thought, now, he did a fantastic job running this business. And it was a time in the market where organic sales were you know, doubling and doubling and doubling. So the business was going in the right direction, but now it was poised to continue growth in a rapid way and continue to expand market share. So we, we went to market. The uh, seller was you know, quite, quite happy uh, with what we had expected. And we got multiple, multiple people interested in it. Uh, one was a public company. 
And then we called everybody and said, here is our deadline for bids. Um, by on this date, we have to have an indication of interest. And the public company said, well, what if we can't make that deadline? We said, we've outlined our process. If you can't get a bid by then, then I'm sorry, I guess you won't be involved. Well, can you extend the deadline for us? No, we can't. We have plenty of people. This is the deadline. And they said, okay, well, tell us, is so-and-so bidding against us? And, and so-and-so is their biggest competitor in the market. And we said, we cannot tell you if they are one of the other bidders. And if they ask me if you are bidding against them, we would not tell them that either. The bidders are confidential. But there's a lot of interest. And we suggest that you make your initial letter of intent your best offer. Otherwise, you're going to lose out. And they said, okay, fine. We, we will meet that schedule, but we know what your competitor just sold for. One of your competitors just sold for 65 million and we would never pay a penny more than that. And we said, you set what you think the value is to you. And, and we left it at that. Now, keeping a straight face, we're all high-fiving. We're, we're, we've been thinking you know, under 50 million, and now they're saying they wouldn't pay a penny over 65. We're, that's a pretty happy day for us. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so we, again, are running a competitive process, and we call for, we call for letters of intent, and what we found in this process, this, this $65 million number was a crazy, crazy multiple of earnings. You know, a lot of businesses sell for a range or some multiple of earnings, but the questions they asked is my biggest competitor bidding against me. They were bidding to create a blocking position in the market. They didn't want their competitor buying them. They had fear of their competitor getting them because our client had a great answer in the organic market. And these big public behemoth companies weren't doing as well in that market. We weren't selling earnings. We were selling a, mark, a brand name in the market. We were selling a solid organic brand name and we were selling a defensive position. And we didn't realize that when we started the process. We thought we were selling a multiple of earnings, but until we got in the market and found the players and what was happening and the changes and shifts in the market, we had a tiger by the tail. And the competitive process is what pushed that. So we got our first round of indications of interest. Uh, eight different people bidding. We had limited to eight. The company that said they would never pay a penny more than $65 million offered $100 million in cash. And that was by formal offer. That was a formal offer, yes. And how did you respond to that? What did you do next? We sat down with our, our client and we went through all of the offers. And uh, I said, do you trust me? And he said, what? And I said, do you trust me? I need you to trust me. He said, okay, I do trust you, Jim. What are you going to do? And I said, I'm going to go back to all the bidders and tell them it's very close and we're gonna have a second round of bidding and they all need to improve their offer. And that's what we did. And this company wanted it so bad, their second offer was 120 million in cash. Now, is this the same company that said no more than 65? Yes, exactly the same company. And they bought it. For $120 million in cash. 
<laughs> well, that is a home run story if I've ever heard of one. It, it is. It's again, I acknowledge it's my best story that I've had, but it shows what a competitive bidding process can do. It shows that different buyers see different value and different buyers buy for different reasons. You know, I've had brokers say, well, what was the multiple of earnings you got for that? And I said, I can't even calculate the multiple of earnings that was so high. But what it meant to this company, a public company, a defensive move against a competitor, it, it was more important than that amount of money. And so we didn't set a cap on it. And we were real happy we never did. Well, I guess the real takeaway here and listening to your story and how you've told it and some of the key components of the story is that you really don't know what the limit or the value of your company is until the market tells you. And that, I guess, secondarily, that uh, competition really drives price. And uh, this story really dramatically illustrates that point. Not every deal is going to be like that. Um, but, you know, you might have a million dollar deal that ends up being a four million dollar deal. Uh, and, you know, anywhere along the spectrum. You know? well, even if you have a million dollar deal that ends up being a million and a half dollar deal, that's a, a lot of difference on a percentage basis for following a specific process and letting the market tell you what you can do. And I guess it really il illustrates the importance of knowing what you're doing and how to run that competitive process. And most entrepreneurs, they don't do this every day as part of their business. So it's a little of a mystery on how all this takes place and having a good advisor standing by and walking you through the process really helps. Well, Jim, I really uh, appreciate you taking the time here today and uh, sharing these war stories with us. Uh, some of them uh, really worked out well for your buyers and some, some not so well, as we heard you talk about here today. So, Jim, if someone wanted to get a hold of you and chat a little bit more about their business and find out more about how they can position their business for an exit down the road, how would they do that? Um, email, web website, email, telephone. Um, phone is the simplest, 480-327-6610. Or my email is jim at ibgbusiness.com. Or you can go to our website, ibgbusiness.com. All right. Well, Jim, that's great. I appreciate your time. So this is Marvin L. Storm with another episode completed here on Business Exit Stories, and we'll see you on the next episode. Thank you for having me, Marvin. Thanks for listening to the Business Exit Stories podcast. For more information or to reach out to today's guest, visit www.businessexitstories.com for more details. Please subscribe, rate, review, and share this podcast from your favorite podcasting platforms. And remember, maximizing business value at the time of exit doesn't happen magically. It takes planning.